Welcome to Uptech Report's series on AI. I'm Alexander Ferguson. In this episode, we continue our conversation with Richard Boyd, founder of Tanjo and Carborough. Richard is a successful entrepreneur, author, and speaker, so we wanted to know how has his thinking on technology and AI evolved? How does he use it in his own business? And how could other business leaders use it in theirs? on, our, our team was working in computer gaming. It started with uh, when I met David Smith here in North Carolina. Uh, when I met him, he was beginning, he had just done a game called The Colony, which was the first real-time 3D adventure game that attracted a lot of attention from people like Tom Clancy and uh, uh, guys like James Cameron, who at the time was working on a movie called The Abyss down in South Carolina. Uh, and uh, uh, so just... Uh, this idea of taking technology and applying it to problems to solve them, like what we saw, we helped James Cameron solve some visualization problems around the movie The Abyss early on, and, and that, that uh, was a fascinating process. Um, but uh, uh, I guess today, um, the uh, uh, so I guess it was a natural evolution, right? Like uh, applying uh, technologies to problems, uh, we ended up uh, getting really interested in artificial intelligence as a way to uh, build deeper meaning into the virtual worlds we were building. And like I said, with computer environments, building more convincing characters that you can believe in, more convincing environments, and it sort of just evolved from there. I mentioned 2009 as the time when we got religion so to speak, on machine learning. And that's when uh, David and I went out to uh, Microsoft Research Labs where Alex Kipman was working on the Microsoft Connect. If you remember that, it was called Natal at the time. They were just trying to teach. So they were creating this. this if, if, I understand they don't sell it anymore, but there was a piece of hardware you could attach to your Microsoft Xbox that would watch you in your living room, and you could use your body as the controller. That was a central idea. But in order for that to work well, the sensors had to be amazing, so they called Lockheed Martin, and Lockheed bought my last company, so David and I were there. We went out to Microsoft Research Labs, and it happened to be during the Game Developers Conference, so we were out there anyway. Walked in and saw Alex, and there was a guy named Jaron Lanier there who I've known for a long time. He's a guy who came up with the term virtual reality. He's the kind of dreadlock guy that you see some pictures of me online with. Um, and uh, And... Initially, we were looking at how can we help you with the sensors? Should it be time of flight? Should it be structured light? Whatever. But we found out pretty quickly they had that nailed. It, what they built was like the optimal solution to that problem in the form factor that they had to fit it in. But the other thing that they showed us was, oh, yeah, we're trying to teach this system what a living room is. And that is a difficult computational problem. Um, and uh, uh, so... Again, there were two approaches. The approach at that time still could have been, let me just program in and tell them what a chair is, what a table is, what a plant is, or whatever. Or the other way, which they thankfully used, was machine learning, which is, let me just have examples of living rooms from all over the world, Asian, uh, European, South American, U.S., rural versus urban, whatever, everything you might encounter in that and give them all the, give the system all those examples, millions and millions of examples. And whatever they did had to fit within about less than 100 megabytes of space, the whole brain for the system. And they were able to achieve that. So that just blew us away, and I, that changed our thinking completely. How did that revelation change the course and direction of your business? 
Secretary of Education at the time, Arne Duncan, and his uh, uh, deputy, Jim Shelton, came to Lockheed and said, hey, we in the government have lots and lots of information at the Smithsonian and all over the place in the Library of Congress. How do we make it available to teachers in an easy way? Like, we're trying to scan and digitize all this stuff in, but how do I make it discoverable by tagging it. Right now, we've got armies of human beings, and they're trying to put tags on stuff. And I usually use a picture of that last scene in the uh, Raiders of the Lost Ark, where you've got a clerk with this crate, and it says Ark thingy on it. And it's the Ark of the Covenant that can destroy or save the planet. You know, and it's inside this box. He's putting in this massive warehouse with a tag that says Ark. It's like, that's undiscoverable. It's a potent thing that's valuable, but undiscoverable. And most of the information we have is what we call dark uh, dark data, right? It's squirreled away somewhere, inaccessible and undiscoverable because it's not digitized or not tagged. Even if it's digitized, it's not tagged. Well, what's amazing with um, uh, what we did for the what's called the learning registry for the Department of Education was built a system that could go and look at that stuff. Read a, you could read the Declaration of Independence or the Magna Carta or any other documents or look at images of things. And if it had something similar to it in its a massive multi-dimensional lookup table, it would go ahead and tag it, right? And uh, if it didn't recognize the thing, then it would say, I need a human expert, and it would call for help, right? Phone a friend. In this case, it's a human to come in and say, oh, that's actually an ancient Cluniac drinking vessel from 100 BC, you know, and and, uh, go ahead and tag it. But of course, once it's been tagged once, the great thing about machines is they never forget. How can businesses and organizations implement practical AI applications? So whether you're practicing law or you're practicing architecture or whatever, what you want now is a machine learning brain like I've just described that goes through everything that you have, all the assets that you have, and reads everything, every document created, every, ideally, to be honest, every email written by all of your people. And it understands, like, what, you know, what do people know? What is our organizational knowledge? And maps it all and, by, by the way, locates where everything is which is something that's incredibly important for digital transformation. Uh, and then, uh, you know, once it's mapped, now you can track things like how, did it, how does new information enter organization? Who's championing it? Who's challenging it? How do decisions get made? Why do we choose this vendor over that vendor? Why do we choose this strategy over that strategy? And it would be able to tell you forensically, you know, uh, uh, what decisions you made and why, and maybe help you make better decisions in the future. What made Red Hat really successful here, again, here in the triangle, was this idea that, you know, implementing Unix-based servers, you know, on, on, you know, within your organization is a complex activity. It's also a very intimate activity because it's where all your people are connecting, right? So do you want to just outsource that to someone else, or do you want to buy a turnkey on-premise tested solution that works ex- extremely well that you can shepherd and manage going forward. And that was that decision that led to how much did they just get bought for, $34 billion or whatever it was, right, from, from free software. So I think that same principle applies here is that, again, whether you're a government organization or you're a company, you're an architecture firm, whatever, get your own machine learning system inside your firewall under your control and uh, and make sure you know where your data is and where it's going. If you want to get people fluent and comfortable with this idea that, hey, I want this asset here, I want this machine learning companion that's going to help me do my job better, but also it becomes a, 
an enduring sort of map of how decisions and how work is done within the organization. So we're doing that for the, all North Carolina community colleges in North Carolina. So there's 58 of them, right? And when this is fully implemented, you know, one of the things I, because I'm on the board of trustees of Wake Tech, right? So I, I understand how turnover happens and, and the sort of complexity of some of these organizations. At Wake Tech, we have like 70,000 students a year. You know, it's a $250 million enterprise that's underway that does a lot of good in the community. Um, but, you know, we just, our president just event like presidents do, they retire. So now we got to put a new person in place. And there's lots of other turnover that happens at various levels throughout the comp- uh, organization. What if when that new person steps in, they could see right away, like they have lo- a little companion AI, that assistant we talked about earlier, that says, well, it looks like you're approaching your first board meeting. Well, the, the last person, here's when they approach this kind of problem, here's how they, here's the resources they went to, here's the people they went to, and here's, here's how they did that job. It's also really good for the organization to have that, have a map of that intelligence within the organization when people leave your company. You've invested a lot of money in those people and, and time. You'd like to have uh, some model of, of, of that that stays behind after they leave. What kinds of success have you found with using AI? Our entire solution set is around something you can implement in less than six months that will have a 10x return on investment. And that, that's our kind of guiding uh, algorithm for everything that we do. So that means we're looking at the low-hanging fruit, like things like accounting. So we work with a local accounting firm, found out that there were some new rules around um, revenue recognition and lease recognition that were coming out. We looked at that and said, that's perfect, because all I need to do is get a bunch of sales contracts, feed it to a system, and don't don't let it see what Kanye West or anybody else is doing. Uh, you know, nothing else on the internet. Just focus on this very tightly bound realm of, like, how to, what, what kind of language are, will you encounter in a sales agreement, whether you're selling software, hardware, you know, services, you know, consumer goods, whatever it happens to be, and become familiar with all of the terms and everything, and not just, like, 10,000, not 100,000, but millions of contracts. Let it read all that, um, create its own sort of inferred understanding of, of how, to, uh, how to process that, and then just do the basic job of like bin sorting. Like, yeah, this is a really standard contract. This one, these have a few like non-standard elements that a human being needs to look at. These are on fire. Like, this is all non-standard. Whoever's doing this is probably trying to cheat you, and this needs a lot of human attention, or you probably should not do, do business with that person, whatever, whatever the rules are, right? And so applying it to things that are easy to um, digest and get, those, get that 10x return in a short amount of time, that's where we find our success. That concludes the audio version of this episode. To see the original and more, visit our Uptech Report YouTube channel. If you know a tech company we should interview, you can nominate them at uptechreport.com. Or if you just prefer to listen, make sure you subscribe to this series on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcasting app. 